You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got to hang out with my friend and her new tiny human. Got more good news than I knew what to do with. Went out to dinner with friends. And here we are. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got American Fiction. This movie is a wickedly sharp social commentary that is also unbelievably funny in the darkest possible ways at times. If you don't know, I did mention this film during last year's finale, but I hadn't seen it yet. But American Fiction is about an African-American author who pretends to be a criminal on the run who wrote a book about his quote-unquote experiences in order to sell books as the books he wrote as quote-unquote himself weren't selling. And it's kind of like he gets super famous off this book where he pretends to be a thug and kind of capitalizes on white guilt. It's a very interesting social comment. Terry, highly recommend it. Really, really good. The script was phenomenal. Definitely will give, uh, if it gets nominated for the Oscar, it'll, it'll give the other ones a run for their money. My Criterion Collection recommendation of the week, so far two for two, is um, Spy Number 1079, which is a documentary called Streetwise from 1983. It's, like I said, a documentary about homeless children on the streets of Seattle during that time. There are also follow-up documentaries available on the subjects that survived beyond their youth. Several of them have very, very tragic endings, including including one that was actually a victim of the Green River Killer. But they're all available on the Criterion channel if you have that subscription. If you don't, highly recommend it. I have found some of my favorite new films on that channel because while there's, you know, some staples of film, there's also some very niche stuff and it's a good time. It's like 11 bucks a month, so it's not on the cheap end, but I, I probably use that almost more than my other streamers at this point, especially for this podcast. With all of that, on to this week's topic. This week, we're taking a look at sword and sandal films or peplum films. I'm calling the episode Sword and Sandal so people don't get confused because peplum's not a widely known word. And my whole thing with this podcast is, you know, don't alienate people who aren't aficionados of cinema. But for the rest of the episode, I am going to call it peplum because that is what it's called. But sword and sandal is like the Americanization of it. So, yeah, I got you in with sword and sandal, but you're going to stay for the peplum. Sound good? Cool. <laughs> So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Immense and immortal was the strength of Hercules. <laughs> Savage and sensual was the world of Hercules. Lavishly produced amid pagan palaces on Mediterranean shores where Hercules lived, loved, and awed his fellow men. Here is fascinating drama, epic in scope, of palace intrigue and murder. <laughs> Of deeds reckless and heroic. The 
great curse and labors laid upon Hercules. May the curse of the gods be upon you. May the hatred of men persecute you until you have paid for the blood of Ephesus. A love so great it defied the gods. Hercules, a legend undimmed in thousands of years, all here to bring you thrill upon thrill. The voyage to distant lands, the attack of the monkey man. The dragon monster guarding the golden fleece. The love-starred warrior women on the island of Amazons. Who knew so well how to entice and tease and kiss before they kill. So before we get into anything else, let's go into what exactly a peplum film is, as we always do. Peplum films are a genre of, for the most part, Italian-produced historical, mythological, or biblical epics set, for the most part, in either the Greco-Roman era or, later on as the genre developed, the Middle Ages. The genre gets its name, peplum, or pepla if it's plural, from the Latin word peplos, which is a Grecian floor-length tunic worn by ancient women, ancient Greek women. If you need a visual, picture a woman dressed from ancient Greek, it's that one. And the term was coined by a French film critic to speak disparagingly about the genre. Most of the films in the Pepla genre are based on ancient myths or legends or Bible with varying levels of regard to the source material. Some were fantasy, but not all, and could also feature real figures of history like Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. Popular stories included slaves and gladiators challenging their rulers, as well as swashbucklers and pirates. Modernly speaking, it was ancient Greek and Roman fan fiction. They had, they had fun with the source material. The starring male roles, more often than not, were played by incredibly muscular men, typically bodybuilders, wrestlers, or athletes of pretty much any sport that got you real big and burly. One of them was a gondolier, which is not a sport, but is a profession that gets you nice and uh, buff, I guess, in the arms and shoulders area for obvious reasons. Their bodies were meant to be more eye-grabbing to hide the low-budget sets that surrounded them, also the limitations in their acting. Opposite them, more often than not, would be scantily clad petite women that they needed to save. Sometimes there would be two of these women, one good, one evil, fighting for the love of the beefcake playing Hercules or whatever. There's also usually a sexy lady dance also to show, like, that it's the pagan era. So just very non-Christian, basically. Peplums also sometimes featured a tyrannical or ambitious ruler who would gain power by getting rid of anyone who might stand in his way. After that, more often than not, it was the quest of our brawny hero to take him out and put a kindly king on the throne. Many of the Peplin films included a clash between two groups, one civilized and the other one basically just heathens, and a city or village typically gets raided and destroyed by the opposing faction. There's a few things that developed along the way, and we'll get to those as we get into the history, which we're going to do right now. Like I mentioned briefly last week, Italian cinema thrived in the early silent era. Italy became known for its massive historical epics that Hollywood would copy and mass-produce to great success. Peplum films are rooted in these epics of the Italian silent film era, starting with films like 1913's Quo Vidi and 1914's Cabiria. 
The latter film featured the uber-buff character Machiste, who started out as an enslaved sidekick, but was so popular when the film released that the character appeared in over 20 films during the silent era, but Kiberia set the tone for the character, if not the setting, as the other Machiste films took place in the present. The character Machiste was originated by dock worker Bartolomeo Pagano, who would often reprise the role in the films and is typically portrayed as Hercules-like, participating in feats of strength required to do heroic things that a mortal man simply could not do. Other elements in Kiberia that would also be on full display in later Peplum films were human sacrifice, a damsel in distress, and massive sets. The film was also revolutionary for its use of slow tracking shots toward or away from the action in a scene. This would become known as Kabiria movement in the mid-1910s cinema when other people tried to copy it. The historic epic era came to an end in 1923 when the Italian film industry was thrown into chaos. If you remember your history or just the brief things we talked about last week, it had a little bit to do with the fact that the fascist party had come into power the previous year, in 1922. Stories of men overthrowing evil leaders, unsurprisingly, didn't have a home in fascist-era Italy. Over the years, the Italian film industry did release several historical films in the early sound era, such as the big-budget Scipio Africanus, or The Defeat of Hannibal in 1937, which was written by Vittorio Mussolini, Benito Mussolini's son. Needless to say, but the film was highly financed by the fascists. In 1949, the post-war Italian film industry remade the film Fabiola, which had previously been adapted twice in the silent era. Fabiola is set during the Roman Empire, in which Christianity is growing around the 4th century AD, and is based on an 1854 novel of the same name. Fabiola is the daughter of a senator who falls in love with a gladiator who's Christian, and they're like pagan, it's a whole thing. The film was released in the United Kingdom and in the U.S. in 1951 in an edited English-dubbed version, to great success. Fabiola was an Italian-French co-production, like later films The Last Days of Pompeii from 1950 and Messalina from 1951, which also saw great success once released. Last Days of Pompeii was also based on a novel and starred a very muscular man named Steve Reeves and was co-written by a soon-to-be staple Italian filmmaker, Sergio Corbucci. During the 1950s, a number of American historical epics were shot in Italy. This started in 1951 after MGM producer Sam Zimbalist realized that shooting in Italy meant lower production costs, especially since it meant they could use funds that had been frozen because of the war. So it was kind of like free money, if you girl math it. Shooting in Italy also meant access to the Italian film workforce, which had a reputation of being quite good. The film being made in 1951 was an epic-sized remake of Quo Vidi. Initially, they had wanted to shoot it in the late 1930s, but, you know, World War II. The film cost $7 million to make, making it the most expensive film ever made at the time, and shot at the now-rebuilt Cinecita Studios in Rome. Quo Vidi also featured a big burly character named Ursus, who would also appear in Peplum films. Quo Vidi ended up being the biggest hit for MGM in over a decade. The last hit they'd had was 1939's Gone with the Wind. And MGM geared up to shoot another film in Italy, Ben-Hur. Several other Hollywood studios would copy MGM, opting to shoot big historical epic films at Cinecita and other surrounding Italian studios. 
As this practice became more prevalent, Cinecita earned the nickname Hollywood on the Tiber. In addition to the aforementioned films, Cleopatra was famously shot, taking advantage of the Italian film resources. These massive productions made huge Hollywood sets that would be abandoned once shooting had completed. Locally at this time, Ricardo Freitas' Sins of Rome was made in 1953 and released RKO in an edited, poorly English-dubbed version the following year. Unlike Quo Vidi, there were no American actors or production crew. Most Peplum films going down the line would be a mixture of American-UK talent and Italian talent. Hollywood began co-producing the Italian-produced films, including Pietro Francisicchi's Attila, from 1954, and Mario Brava's Ulysses, which starred American actor Kirk Douglas, who was also the star of Ben-Hur. These two films are typically considered the first of the Peplum films of the 1950s, but the name was christened a little later on. To cash in on the success of Ulysses, Franciski wanted to make a film about Hercules, but had searched in vain for a few years to find an actor that had the physical gravitas and chops for the performance. His daughter ended up coming to the rescue after spotting Steve Reeves in the American film Athena. Reeves was a bodybuilder who'd been Mr. America in 1947, Mr. World in 1948, and Mr. Universe in 1950s, so a natural choice. He was a very attractive, big, big man. That's why Dr. Frankenfurter sings about him in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Reeves was hired to play Hercules in his fourth ever film for $10,000. The film was called Le Fatice di Ercole, and the film was a retelling of the Jason and Argonauts quest for the Golden Fleece, and Hercules was there too. Don't quote me on it. I don't believe Hercules is in that original myth. I think it's Jason and the Argonauts are supposed to be like the leads, but don't, again, don't quote me on that. When the film released to financial success abroad, American producer Joseph Levine, who'd brought the original Godzilla film to the U.S. a couple of years prior, acquired the U.S. distribution rights, renamed the film Hercules, and made $5 million just off of the U.S. run of the film. As is the way in the film industry, the financial success of this film led to a sequel, Hercules Unchained, and a re-release of the 1949 film Samson and Delilah made by Cecil B. DeMille, which was similar in tone. After both of those went well, scores of imitations followed made by other studios. The ones that were brought from Italy were re-edited and more often than not poorly dubbed, leading to a campy movie-going experience. In Italy proper, the Peplum films tended to be popular in second-run cinemas, which were frequented more by the working-class audiences who liked to heckle the films. The popularity of these pictures led to some of them, like 1961's Hercules and the Conquest of Atlantis, to be shown in larger 70mm formats. That is not a cheap thing to do, so them betting on something like that with 70mm film meant that there was a ton of market confidence for these films. The first film to be officially labeled a peplum at the time was Ricardo Freda's The Giants of Thessaly in 1960, which was also a retelling of the story about the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece. This film had a wider scope than the Steve Reeves film, adding Orpheus to the crew, but they called him Morfeo, and having the Argonauts battle a Cyclops. 
The Italian filmmakers also resurrected the Machiste character in a brand new 1960s sound film series, which ran from 1960 to 1964. And other heroes also got their own film series as well, like Hercules, Samson, and Ursus. From this moment on, nearly all of the Peplum films of this era featured bodybuilders as their stars, the most popular being the aforementioned Reeves, as well as Gordon Scott and Reg Park. Several others, famously Mickey Hargitay and Don Vadis, had been sourced from Mae West's touring stage review in the United States during the 1950s. If you remember from the Jane Mansfield episode from a few months ago, that was how her and Hargitay met. In the show, Wes sang songs surrounded by bodybuilders, so it essentially became a cattle call for Peplum films. There were also Italian-born bodybuilders that made it up on the screen on the Peplum films, though they were given English-sounding stage names for the credits. For example, stuntman Sergio Ciani became Alan Steele, and an ex-gondolier named Adriano Bellini was rechristened Kirk Morris. This practice continued on for several decades with other genres. Many of these films saw widespread popularity among audiences and had production values that were mostly typical for popular films of their day. They were overall very smart with resources. Several films reused the massive sets that had been created for Ben-Hur and Cleopatra and the like. They just took the Hollywood sets and, you know, zhuzhed them up, made them look a little bit different or not in some cases. And ta-da, big set. They weren't using them anymore and it was just taking up space. So might as well, you know, make a quick film on them that would make a bunch of cash. As far as what would happen on the screen, Peplum films varied quite a bit as the genre's popularity continued. While it started as being a name for films just from antiquity or myths or Bible, the genre eventually grew to include other historical periods. Eventually, Peplum meant any sort of costume drama with high drama and major action elements. One thing they didn't really change was the need for the big strong man to be placed at the center of the film. And it's the first thing you'll notice if you like Google Peplum films. If you look at the posters, there's always a big, big, strong, strong man in a like a toga flexing on it. And it's usually it takes up a good amount of real estate on the poster. Italian filmmakers made at least 19 different Hercules proper pictures during the height of the Peplum film, though a number of other films featuring characters such as Machiste were rebranded as Hercules for their release in English-speaking markets because Machiste was not a widely known figure outside of Italy, and I guess they just didn't want to teach people other people's stuff. As a general rule, any peplum distributed in English that had Machiste or Ursus as the protagonist and or whose name appeared in the titles of the pictures would be renamed Hercules or occasionally Goliath when dubbed and the title would be changed accordingly if the character's name appeared in the title of the film. For example, Machiste contra el vampiro from 1961, which features the character Machiste confronting a powerful vampire, was renamed Goliath and the Vampires when it hit the U.S. Since a lot of these featured monsters, that meant there was a need for some visual effects and makeup. This led to artists having to come up with inventive, though sometimes unconvincing effects that included costumes, rubber suits, and use of forced perspective and stop motion to make the big monsters. This genre was huge for furthering the art of makeup because people had to get real creative to kind of like scare and delight audiences. As the peplum trend continued, meaning the market was incredibly saturated, filmmakers started looking for ways to make their films stand apart from the others, leading to an increase of these fantastical elements. 
as is the case with most trends, this would get a little bit out of hand, like CGI is now. For example, Machiste, the strongest man in the world, or as it was known in the US, Mole Men Against the Son of Hercules, features Machiste seeing a ritual sacrifice conducted by Mole Men who are dressed entirely in white. Their intended victim was Bango, played by Caribbean bodybuilder Paul Winter. Machiste rescues Bango, and the pair team up to take down the mole men who are abducting locals and using them as slaves to power their underground machinery. Not gonna lie, saw some clips of this, really want to watch this one, and it's free on YouTube, so gonna try and hit that one this week. Didn't have a lot of time to watch many of these, but I saw many clips and they're crazy. Although many of the bigger budget Peplum films were released theatrically in the U.S., 14 of them were repackaged to air on TV as the Sons of Hercules. And no, they didn't start off as the Sons of Hercules. Once again, because Americans didn't know Machiste or Ursus, the characters were renamed and the films were re-edited into a series of shorts, basically television episodes, by splicing on the same opening and closing theme song and putting in a voiceover that attempted to link the protagonist of each film to the Hercules mythos. These films ran on Saturday afternoons throughout the 1960s. Peplum Films also did a very important thing for Italian cinema as they established the cycle of filone, basically the prevalence of popular films in the Italian market. Filone means strand or vein, it's also a type of bread, and is used to mark a particular business model of film production that boomed in Italy from the late 1950s up to the end of the 1970s. Basically, the model was make a shit ton of that kind of movie that was popular until the trend's profitability was depleted. So, you know, kind of what Hollywood does now. We'll talk about two filone genres over the next two weeks. Peplum films were, and still are, often ridiculed for their low budgets and bad English dubbing, as well as the <laughs> not exactly Oscar caliber acting of the bodybuilders and bad visual effects. In the 1990s, several of them were riffed on in Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of like... It's like a man watching movies with robots and they make fun of really bad movies, quote unquote, bad movies. They did a brief revival on Netflix. I watched a couple of them, but I think it's one of those things you had to grow up with and kind of do the nostalgia play on it. And I also didn't like just them interrupting movies that I hadn't seen before. So maybe if I saw the movie first and then watch the episodes, you'd like it. But yeah, so that's what Mystery Science Theater is. If you don't know what that is. In the early 1960s, a group of French film critics, mostly writing for the Cahiers du Cinema, lauded the genre and some of its directors, including someone we're going to hear a bit more about in a future episode, Sergio Leone. They also complimented some of the screenwriters, often put together in teams, who worked past the typically formulaic plot structure to produce a mixture of, quote, bits of philosophical readings and scraps of psychoanalysis, reflections on the biggest political systems, the fate of the world and humanity, fatalistic notions of accepting the will of destiny and the gods anthropocentric belief in the powers of the human physique, and brilliant synthesis of military treatises, end quote. While that sounds like a very good compliment, and I believe it is, those are the same critics that gave it its snarky nickname, so, you know, not going to be ethnocentric about that. Hundreds of Peplum films were made from 1960 to about 1965 when the Spaghetti Western, more on that in a few weeks, and Eurospy genres took over in popularity. This is when the Filone cycle began. 
And also what I didn't mention earlier is that the Italian um, industry would um, focus on what was popular in English language cinema, not so much what was popular in their own country. And there was a lot of co-productions like we'll talk. We're going to do Giallo films next week. Like there's a lot of them like Suspiria and Opera, which are probably two of the more famous ones that are in English primarily or are dubbed incredibly well, kind of. Unlike neorealism last week, though, Peplum Films did have a brief comeback. After lying in wait for 17 years, in 1982, the box office successes of Quest for Fire from 1981, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Conan the Barbarian from 1982, and Clash of the Titans from 1981 spurred a second renaissance of Italian peplum films that lasted through about 1987. Seems like five, six years is the sweet spot for these bad boys. Most of these films had low budgets, focusing more on barbarians and pirates because Greco-Roman sets are very expensive to construct. It's a lot easier to do those things, a lot cheaper to do those things, rather. And obviously the sets that they reused a lot from the 60s were either destroyed or dilapidated, so they didn't have those in their back pocket this time around. The filmmakers also try to compensate for their acting and budget limitations with the addition of some very graphic gore and nudity because that can now be shown in the U.S. in the 1980s. Many of these new Peplum films were made by major Italian horror film directors after the giallo genre lost popularity. Like I said, more on that next week. Other actors featured in this reemergence included Lou Ferrigno of Incredible Hulk TV show fame and Miles O'Keefe. Peplum films are remembered for their quality or lack thereof in camp and open the career doors for many Italian filmmakers who'd make a name for themselves in other Felone films and set the template rules for at least five other Italian film genres. They were a fun time focusing more on human emotions rather than trying to preach some kind of moral. They're just a good, weird, wacky time. Often overlooked or ignored, they appeared in only one of my film history books as afterthoughts if they were mentioned at all. Like I have I have three that I go to on the regular. Only one of them mentioned the films at all. And two of the three mentions were just kind of like, oh, and then it came after ish neorealism. Like Peplum films, are, it was very hard to find resources. That's why this is a little bit of a shorter episode. It's not a well-researched or well-documented genre because it doesn't really have like the gravitas or the intellectual sexiness of like neorealism or French New Wave or something like that. So these get overlooked a lot. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with something being a little bit bad or a little bit fun. That has its place too. If you're just watching art films all day, you just got to be like smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee in the dark. Like these have their place in the world, too. Peplum films honestly have yet to have their day in the sun. And based on, you know, what I've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think they deserve to be rediscovered from the bowels of film history. We've definitely gone hard on way lesser deserving genres over the years. So give give a Peplum film a chance this week. They're very easy to find on YouTube. I've got the letterbox thing. Let this tiny, tiny microscopic group of listeners go hard on the Peplum genre. Through the centuries in olden times, there lived the sons of Hercules, heroes supreme. They roamed the earth, righting wrongs, helping the weak and oppressed, and seeking adventure. They were the mightiest of mortal men. One of them was Majestus. It is of his deeds we tell now. 
of his struggle with the Mole Man. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I again had coffee from home today because I had to edit this. I had to edit the script on this this morning, so I didn't have time to run out. Um, and I also have a cat birthday party tonight, so Lord help me. Um, but yeah, I've got a time crunch today. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Cat birthday party. Uh, millennials. Editing Caitlin here. I just wanted to make it clear that it is not my cat because I don't have a cat for the birthday. I'm going to someone else's house for a cat birthday because there'll be free food and booze. Next week, we are covering the origins and the genre of giallo films. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.